this is actually part two of what I just talked about because it occurred to me that there is no obvious tie-in to my discussion of uh, political theory, which we'll start with I the the not the last podcast, but the one before that. I was talking a lot about uh, social contract theory and what to make of it. And I was talking about the French Revolution. And here's the, there is a tie-in to Frankenstein and social contract theory. Um, The tie-in is something like this. At the time she was writing, I think it was published in uh, 1814, or 1812, one of those two, 99% sure. She was writing, uh, I know more about this than I should because I was reading Richard Holmes, which is one of the, the great intellectual historians, living intellectual historians. I think he, he became Sir Richard Holmes because he writes prose so well. And so I was really enamored with Richard Holmes when I was writing the myth, my myth, I mean, my book, because basically I, I take writers that I think write better than me. I actually really do this. Like in reality, this is not some romanticized version of what I do. It is what I do. I take a writer and you can always find a writer that writes better than you. I don't know what you would do if you were Richard Holmes. <laughs> I don't know what he did, but he, he must have had some method and it didn't, doesn't, you know, whatever it is. But this is what I did. So I have to write about tech, but if I write about tech like people who write in IEEE, that's just going to be some damn thing that like, it's not going to be, it's not going to have a general readership and people aren't going to talk about it longer than the argument that I made, right? It's just going to, it's going to be what it is in prose that it is, right? And so on and so forth. And that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to write a book that had a certain timeless quality to it, but also was, was accurate on details and powerful, as it were, in the points that I was making. So, I, you know, there's the technical component, which, you know, I, come, I worked in this field for 20 years, so it's not, that wasn't actually the hardest part. Uh, it was a little bit hard to pull together what everybody was saying, like, what's Gary Marcus saying? What's Stuart Russell saying? And how do I sort of get that into one narrative? Uh, But, you know, at the end of the day, that wasn't the hardest part. The hardest part was to write the book in such a way that it itself was a piece of literature. That was the hardest part. And to do that, I can't read Stuart Russell and Gary Marcus and Ray Kurzweil because they are definitely not (laughs) the best writers, nonfiction writers in the world. I'm not saying they're not good. I'm saying they're better uh, scientific people than they are writers, even though I think in Gary Marcus's case and Stuart Russell's case, they're among the best writers on artificial intelligence in the world, definitely. But that doesn't make them the best writ large, point blank, right? Like it doesn't work that way. It's possible, there's no logical contradiction in that, but it's not very likely that somebody that spent most of their, their life uh, fucking around with Turing machines, forgive my French, is also going to be the best, you know, you know, nonfiction writer like that. It's not likely that those two things are going to coincide. 
And if you want them to coincide, you're going to have to do more work. So I read uh, Richard Holmes. And Richard Holmes writes these huge tomes on intellectual history. And one of his, his he wrote is called The Pursuit. And it's basically, it's like a 900-page biography history of Percy Shelley. And, you know, Percy Shelley married... Mary Wollstonecraft, Wollstone Wollstone there we go. And so I read that entire book, not necessarily because I wanted to find gems about the Frankenstein, the, the, Frank, the book, uh, Frankenstein. Although that was a subsidiary, maybe a secondary motivation, maybe. It's like, well, I'm probably going to work in this damn 200-year-old myth. Um... So maybe I'll get some more on that. But mostly I just wanted to read his prose. And so I read that. And, uh, you know, a lot of the the stuff that came out of the book, like Mary Shelley, who they got married actually, I think after, uh, they were in uh, Switzerland. Famously, there had been a volcanic explosion on the other side of the world, I think somewhere in, uh, you know, Indochina or something. <laughs> really, I, I don't like in, in uh, what's like uh, the chain of islands, Indonesia, there we go. And it had actually, it was such a huge volcanic explosion that it covered basically the entire atmosphere with a layer of soot that actually pushed, not, a, not around the planet, but from Indonesia to Switzerland and so they had this because it actually interfered with the signing of the shining of the sun. This is true. This actually happened in 1814, or it was probably at this time. It was a few. It was a couple of years before because it took her a while to get it published. Um, but yeah, so they had this really unseasonably cold weather in Switzerland, and they were whole, they were with Byron, who's like the most crazy. F- Byron makes me look like a calf, a priest. Ah, that's a bad example. A Protestant, a Catholic priest. That yeah, I'm like too many, uh, too many associations to be drawn. Byron makes me look like uh, uh, a an actuary, an accountant, or something. I don't know, like just a, a, an insurance salesman. He's like crazy, like really crazy, and uh, he uh, was he was. Uh, extremely attractive to the young Percy Shelley. And so, because he was famous and he also was, he, I think he was, he was like, sir or Lord rather, he was Lord Byron. Right. So he, he, had, he, his really powerful guy in England, but he was just the original rebel. Like he was just the original bad guy. And, um, but he was, he was irresistible to this Percy Shelley who hadn't yet become too famous. Although Shelley had, I think by this time, had published a few things, some, some pretty, some, I think some pretty well-received piece of poetry. Um, and so anyway, they were like, they were hanging out in this big hotel. It was like this big lodge that they rented. Probably Byron rented it because I don't think Shelley had any money. He was always in debt. He was penurious, but he, he was in penury, but that, that was ridiculous because he spent all his money all the time. And actually Shelley himself came from came from his dad was a member of the uh 
parliament or something in Britain, one of those houses. And, um, but they were completely estranged. So Shelley ran off at an early age and didn't do what his dad wanted. And he was a very reactionary. He was basically an anarchist. He was for over, pretty much for overthrowing the government, which made him really good friends at first with, uh, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft's father, Godwin, and Godwin was, he was an anarchist, basically, although of the more, he was, he was not an anarchist that wanted to burn everything down, but he was, he had very, very radical left-wing politics. He was, he's, usually people call Godwin an anarchist. He was one of the original, like one of the British anarchists, as was uh, Mary Shelley's mother, who died, I think she died because she gave birth to Mary, or no, no, sorry, is that true or was it the next kid? I can't remember, but she died in a childbirthing situation. She got in an infection basically and it killed her a few days later. She died like less than a week after the birth. And um, so she was, not, she was dead, but she was also, she was one of the original feminists and, fe- feminists and she was also flirting with anarchism in the sense that she thought they should just dissolve the government and do something else entirely. All this to say there was a lot going on politically in Mary Shelley's early life and she was just about to be betrothed to the fucking crazy dude number two, Percy Shelley. And one, actually I did eventually enjoy, in addition to just Richard Holmes's prose, I really did just enjoy reading about these guys because I don't feel so out of like when you read about them, you kind of realize there are people who do this, they live this way. And like, it gives you a broader perspective. It's like, well, I'm not so, you know, like Byron was definitely crazier than me. If I was hanging out with Byron, I would be like, dude, you got to chill out, man. Seriously. We, we've like, fought, you just brought, like he would, he had, he had a house that he was in Italy. He just rented a big villa out. Like he had money, like a lot of money, right? Like, I don't know how much he would be worth today, but he was probably had like a million dollars a year in the bank or he, but he would find a way to spend basically all of it. And uh, so he just rented out this huge villa in Italy and he had, he bought all these like uh, zoo animals and they were just walking around. It's true, actually. Like he, they had like, I don't know, like uh, orangutans and chimpanzees and like big like farm animal kind of things and like giant snakes and lizards and peacocks and all these like huge birds from the tropics and they were just in this villa and then he would just have an endless stream of women and he was just he just was a boozer you know I don't think he was like I don't know what kind of a boozer he was but he was the kind of boozer where he was pretty much drinking anytime he felt like it at any time of day who cares but uh Percy Shelley was just, uh, well, he was, uh, yeah, I mean, he was, he was rebellious. He wouldn't, I'm not going to get in. Percy Shelley was, had a different sort of character, but he was equally difficult to fathom as a normal day-to-day person. Uh, and his decisions basically were bad. I mean, you can, you can debate at some level, you can give him some license because obviously he was like a genius. That's pretty obvious. He was a genius even among geniuses, Percy Shelley was. He was like really, really 
I think he taught, he, he translated, he knew several languages and he, he translated in the original Latin a bunch of old books that like professors couldn't even do. And it was all good, right? It wasn't like, it was, he was really smart, but uh, he made really bad decisions. <laughs> like really bad. Um, okay, back to Holmes and then actually back to Mary Shelley and then back to myths. So at the time she was writing, there was a lot of, tension in the air about politics. It was actually just 20 years after the French Revolution and the ramifications of the French Revolution had not still yet been absorbed or fully understood. So you have 18, it was probably 1812 or something when they were in the Switzerland house, if the book got published 1814. And in 1789, you had the original, in July, the original French Revolution. And you had, at the time, Britain was undergoing a huge also, which people were very paranoid that Britain was going to um, repeat the French Revolution. And so guys like, not Byron so much, but guys like Shelley and guys like Mary Shelley's dad, William Godwin, they were using the French Revolution and trying to understand its repercussions for the British system, which was under stress and strain, and it was trying to reform itself, just as the monarchy in France under Louis XVI 20 years ago was trying to reform itself. And it blew apart, right? And, you know, commentators would often say they butchered and dismembered the French monarchy only to create a bloody and, you know, only to create a mom, a, a monster, right? In other words, they, they murdered in cold blood the monarchy only to create a murderous monster and call it progress. That was some of the commentary that was coming out, right? And of course, Burke, you know, but it doesn't fit as well into our categories. This is something that drives me crazy about politics today. It's so bloodless and stupid that people just immediately sort of, we just have these categories that we think in. And it's like, yeah, Burke. But if you read Burke, he makes a hell of a lot of sense. But so, so did non-Burkeans, right? There are all kinds of views on it. And it was a very deep and complicated thing that what was going on. Um, but so when Shelley wrote... Frankenstein, one thing that is, I think, actually textually not completely transparent, but is certainly very possible, is that she was thinking of Frankenstein's monster in part as what happens politically when you create something out of scratch. How can it go wrong? And certainly her dad was deeply in, you know, ensconced in this kind of this kind of thinking about politics, right? And I mean, even, even if you're an anarchist, the French Revolution was somewhat of an embarrassment. Although, it, you know, it, it worked out in the end, but at the it's like there was, a, there was a sense in which nobody wanted a repeat of that, right? We want, they, they wanted the reform, but nobody really wanted heads just rolling down the street. I mean, that's not really what you want, unless you're that, unless you're those sorts of anarchists emerged in Russia by around 1850. And that's another interesting story to tell. Um, but these were anarchists that were trying to write and publish things, not, uh, you know, go find all the guillotines. 
and roll them into Downey Street. Um, so that's one, one reading potentially of Mary Shelley's writing is that it had political undertones. And she, I mean, she was very, extremely brilliant, precocious 19-year-old who had grown up from a very, long, a very small age with intellectual parents, one of them dead. But, you know, her, her mom was one of the original feminist writers in Britain, in England, and her dad was this, like, fairly famous, although also living kind of in, you know, in, in like, near bankruptcy all the time, you know, quasi-anarchist writers, very left, very left-wing reformists, put it that way. And so she, you know, she was well aware of all this stuff by the time she was 19. That's very clear. Uh, and so was Percy Shelley, by the way. Uh, in fact, he had taken a number of public positions in, in pamphlets and in various publications that made it on the street in London and got him in a lot of trouble. He almost got thrown in jail for his views. And so you know, he, had, he had already taken a position on a lot of this stuff. Um, so one way of looking at Frankenstein's myth, the Frankenstein myth, that is, is that it actually is expressing things about creating monsters more abstractly like political entities. And certainly, if you look at the Leviathan, which was the Thomas Hobbes famous, he's back way back in like 16-something, right? Or 15-something, I don't know, it was way back, a couple hundred years before Shelley. If you look at the uh, Hobbes' social contract work with the Leviathan, it literally has, famously, it's, it's depicted on the cover of the book as it was a monster, the Leviathan was a monster that was created out of all the individual people to express the general will. So there was this idea that we could kind of architect intellectually, we could architect the general will, we could architect a solution to the problem of governance, right? And that actually started, that, that started, I mean, most obviously with Hobbes, who famously, remember, had that Frankenstein monster, that general will that was made up of all the people. He had that be an actual downward pressing, pressuring authority on the people as well. That's how it works. You give it up voluntarily to get, to get security. But it was, a kind of, it was a kind of intellectual, it was like a Frankenstein creation in a way. It doesn't exist in the natural state. What did he say the natural state was? A war of all against all, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, right? So it certainly wasn't organic in that sense to Hobbes. It was, it was, it was actually in tension with anything that you might call organic. Now, then we talked about Locke. So the tie-in to my other podcast, the podcast just, that I just made before, is that part of this idea of creating a monster is a social contract idea of government. Now... What's going to happen with that monster? And it's unclear. There's an, there's an ambiguity in Frankenstein that maps onto the political ambiguity. Does the monster turn, like as in the citizens, with capital C citizens of the French Revolution, does it turn on its creator? Does it turn on, you know, everyone that, you know, right, everyone before and does it go and seek out people who, are, who don't believe? Does it create this kind of uh, horror, you know, nightmare, this kind of horrible uh, result because it has now the power of all the wills, solitary individual wills become one will? But is it a monster that the creator can't stop? 
Well, that certainly, that was one way of reading the French Revolution, certainly. Uh, it, was actually, it, was, it was actually Lafayette who was the great, he's the great general. It was like uh, George Washington's right-hand man in the, the American Revolution. It was, it was actually Lafayette who said, he, he sort of, you know, he's, he wrote, he said, after one of the original, I think when they stormed the Bastille, and which is why it was like the symbol of French monarchical power was the Bastille. And so when, the, when they stormed the Bastille, uh, the soldiers re- refused to fire except for in a couple instances. But the people who tried to stop them were actually stabbed just ignominiously by the crowd. Dis- I mean, they actually were dismembered. They were, and they held their heads up. So there was this kind of, uh, and it was Lafayette actually who said, even at the worst moments, and I'm not saying this because I'm American, believe me, I'm not saying it at all. I don't have any dog in that fight other than this is what Lafayette said. He said, the American, even by the standards of the American Revolution, this is brutal and, un- and, and difficult to understand. And so, but my point in saying that is not to get into a discussion between the two revolutions. It's to say the idea that there was a, that we had created, that they had created a monster was in the air, definitely. Um, That couldn't be controlled morally or otherwise. And so that's the tie-in. Now, is that the right reading? No. I mean, according to Ball, the right reading of Frankenstein is any one of a number of readings. It has to do with how we create monsters and all those moral tensions that bring that into being. And what is a monster? And who was the monster? Was it the creator or was it the monster? And so the politically correct reading of Frankenstein is that it was the creator that's the monster, not the monster. But there's a lot of textual evidence that the monster really was a damn monster. And so, um, so yeah, that's the tie-in. That's, that's it.